cold open format we're back to um hot opens <laughs> the hot mic open <laughs> maroon on mars matt and hillary penultimate perhaps the penultimate episode of the 2312 season it, i it should be in theory next time will be like a little marathon because it'll be 60 pages which is probably the max we've done for this book we've spent yeah. more time talking about this book than any of the previous books that we have read i think on the more we time started, than Red Mars? I, well, the thing is, like with Red Mars, I think we were pretty good about keeping episode lengths under an hour and a half. Yeah. And Red Mars only has six, six or eight parts. So there were only six or eight episodes. Maybe right, there was, right, right. I think one, one of the episodes we broke into two, something like that. This we have had, I think this is our 12th episode. And we started this season in June. I like know talking about this book for six months. I know, but I think that that I think it has something to do with how time has become meaningless. Yeah, that definitely is part of it. I mean, time was always meaningless, but it. Yeah, man, what is time? It's just a number. It, <laughs> it's a number the man makes you keep track of. You ever but, think about like a wristwatch? It's like a handcuff that you wear. You like you're handcuffing yourself to time, man. Uh. Matt, you're just saying what I actually think. And like <laughs> a necktie is like a noose you wear to work, man. Well, Dependent that depends. Um uh <laughs> when Diane Keaton does it, it's fine, I guess. Okay. Uh, that that was the point that I was gonna make. Uh Matt, <laughs> but what about Diane Keaton? Um uh yeah, I uh I just feel like the kind of um, like the the rhythm, despite the fact that we've had to work this whole stupid uh, time and we keep having to work, even though obviously we should just not have to work. Um, I feel like something about something about the, you know, the pandemic has just thrown off a sense of however illusory or, you know, ideological or imaginary it might be that there is something like forward momentum, you know? Right. So basically we've just been floating around in space with this book because we're just floating around in space, you know? Right. Yeah. The myth of progress is, is um, definitely some, uh, a myth that is being uh, tested with every passing day <laughs> that somehow we're smarter or more advanced than people were in the past um, is really obviously untrue. Um, just because we have the hindsight of history doesn't mean we have, that makes us any safer or <laughs> smarter yeah. than um, than those people. Yeah. Including ourselves in that timeline. Like the older you get, it's not necessarily the older and more experienced you get, the more smart or secure you get it's actually oftentimes quite the opposite or just not even it's not even a, a a measurement of more or less or a spectrum of smarter or dumber it's just like it's more much more chaotic and confusing than that 
Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And, and we just like, so there's like so little available in the world, or at least our world generally that reminds you or makes you think that like, you know, we belong to this fundamentally creative kind of species that is always like thinking about things and imagining new things and making decisions and trying things out and experiment, you know, like (laughs) this, I don't know, this feels like uh, between like the sort of uh, the news from Antarctica and the pandemic and just the like now nobody, nobody can miss that, you know, the American political system is, um, what it's always been, which is just a kind of like, uh, you know, (laughs) sort of slightly, whatever, a fiction, a fiction, um, a fictional distraction or whatever it is. Anyway, between all of those things, it feels like just so it's so hard to grab a hold of anything that feels like, you know, a kind of hopeful or creative posture toward the world or, you know, yeah. yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, we don't have to get that much into it because it's probably for most people listening, it's pretty obvious how bleak everything is um, and how difficult it is to ima- like think or imagine our way out of it or, or like past the next, say, five to 10 years or something like that, because things will change. They will be become incre- increasingly chaotic. Like the Thwaites Glacier thing is um, extremely yeah. scary and- yeah there's really nothing to say about that because it's very clear that the people brainwashed by capitalism are not worried about it. Um, don't see it as a, actually see it as an opportunity. I mean, that's how bad the disease, the mental disease of the mental illness of capitalism is probably there's some, a bunch of people who are thrilled about it. Um, about all the beachfront property in the world being underwater. <laughs> yeah. The insurance companies are thrilled about it. Probably the people, the people placing bets on the intertidal. Exactly. Which makes me think that NY, uh, New York 2140 should be our next book, but who knows what it'll be. Yeah. Yeah. We have to figure that out. Um, yeah, man. Uh, I do think, I mean, we've, I've said this to you before, but I, I know it's long, but you should read the new David Graeber book. Um, how far are you into it? I finished it. Are you serious? I it's it it's really not. It's a really a like very like bouncy. Well, I bet it is, but it's also seven hundred pages. Yeah. Well, you read long books. You're a Victorianist. You're one of these weirdos. Yeah. I mean, I haven't really been a Victorianist for a long time, but I've yeah, been but a, but I've been a weirdo for my whole life. Old, <laughs> you can't. You can take the Victorianist out of. Victoria. I mean, it's possible that I became a Victorianist because one, I was interested in capitalism and two, I was good at reading really long books. That's probably, yeah, you, there you go. Uh, yeah. Victorianism was just an interlude in a long (laughs) arc of long novelism. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the, I think that the, um, uh, I think it's a, a really great book. Like there's some, there are things I would argue with and they're like places where they do intellectual history that I'm kind of like, meh, 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 this, but like the sort of um, the kind of picture that they're trying to give about um, um, 
essentially like kind of creativity and contingency in the in the making of human life and more almost more than anything else like extraordinary variation in early human life um that part of it that part of its argument and 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 they you know like it it's pretty interesting too as they think about like as they try to say in a kind of practical way and i would guess that this is more like graber than wengrow but sort of what what freedom is um uh but even i mean all of that stuff is is really good and interesting and then just like along the way it's just like these really marvelous like instances and examples like drawn from the archaeological record um that they tell they tell really well and even even if it was only that there's just this feeling of the extraordinary richness of human life rather than our our destiny either evolutionarily or like politically or whatever it might be to live in this depleted way that we live now and i will say like um you know there's a bunch of stuff in there that i mean it would have been great if it had been out while we were talking about shaman and there's a bunch of stuff in there that vibes really well with shaman and some things that actually i think would be super interesting to think about in relation to that to that novel too um but but it it is a real like um you know i feel like i we've quoted this like a thousand times but like Jameson says the Mars trilogy is the utopia of utopias. And, and this book is also kind of that, you know, I think it would not claim to have a utopian project, but it, it kind of is this like, you know, um, not just saying like, we can imagine people having tried things out, but also we can like look around and see that people have, were constantly trying things out. And that a lot of the stuff that like happened, you know, a lot of the stories that we have about how we get from like agriculture to the state, for example, are true in some places, um, but they're not true in other places. And it's just that those instances have come to stand in for us and be ruled over by these big overarching conceptual terms that we have trouble getting, like the state that we have trouble getting outside of. Anyway, it's I, you would really enjoy it. And it is actually quite fun to read. Yeah, it. I really, I really, I definitely will get around to it probably after January when I'm teaching a class yeah. up at Colby yeah. college. Um, if that still happens because, and the world doesn't end in the next two weeks. <laughs> um, I definitely want to, and I also want to like save, I have enough books around here to read that are like multiple hundred pages long before I get another 700 page book to yeah, clog yeah. up my, I hear that to trip over or whatever. Um, but it sounds great. I definitely want to read it. And also like, I just want like picking up on the idea of like the variety and the heterogeneity of human organization and human living together. I think one of the big, you know, obviously obstacles to imagining our way out of this is how dominant capitalism is globally now, because you look around and there are hardly any alternatives or the alternatives are so small or contingent or precarious um, or not really, maybe not viable or the imagination to scale them up is not viable, all these types of things, right? Not that there aren't like different, like obviously there's different organizations of the state all over the world, like different ways to organize a state, but they're all still state formations. Like the, na the nation state is obviously super dominant. Um, then within the nation state or, or, or like in these kind of subaltern groups or whatever, that's where like, no, it also, because the, 
the state controls the media. I mean, not to be conspiratorial about it, but like the, the, you know, the, the media is controlled by capitalist interests. So it becomes very difficult to transmit or translate um, alternate modes of, of human living together around to give them legitimacy or to actually encourage people to talk to each other. And, and one thing that we've lost with the dominance of like modern techno technological media is the ability to just talk to people, like talk to strangers um, and have a conversation where you're not immediately being defensive or um, trying to get, get away from talking to a stranger, <laughs> like yeah. having a conversation with <laughs> yeah. somebody like, Oh, like that, that, you know, trying to maintain just keeping it small talk and not talking, not actually talking about anything is a real thing that, you know, happens a lot in everyday society, not only when you're talking to strangers, but also when you're talking to friends, it becomes yeah. difficult yeah. to like actually share, um, political thinking or like to have, because I think too, like so much of our society and global society is like object, object oriented or object directed. Not, I'm not talking about the philosophical school of object oriented mm -hmm. ontology. I'm talking about like, what is the objective of having this conversation? What is the goal here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to win this conversation um, uh, or, or that kind of, or, or some kind of like, rather than just like hanging out, being together, like, you know, hang, hanging out. I was thinking about this because we've been watching Seinfeld and like, they just <laughs> go had, to Jerry's to, apartment. You had to bring it back to Seinfeld. <laughs> Look, it's a foundational text. More than any novel is probably a, the foundational text of my life, right? They just go to Jerry's apartment and they just hang out, you know, like they do. people don't do that anymore. Did they ever do it in the nineties? Maybe they did. Yeah, I mean, maybe they do do that. And I just don't have any friends, which both could be true at the same time. Well, they're definitely not doing it now because now everybody is getting COVID again. Exactly. I so mean, everybody was thing. always getting COVID, but now yeah. everybody is thinking, oh, my God, now everybody's getting COVID again. Yeah, that's another thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that that I mean, and also I think that there is a really I mean, obviously, this is why certain strains of science fiction are extremely important, but I, I think that like, po you know, post or maybe starting with around-ish with Reagan, there is a really generalized and, and systematic kind of, um, you know, not only, not only this, you know, whatever, like the whole capitalist realism thing is obviously a cliche, but the, the sense that not only is there no alternative, but that in fact, like actually existing like alternatives, in other words, people who are living differently are doing different things. I mean, I think that this is not, this is very, probably very American, probably very North American, I would guess. Um, yeah. But like, there's something like foolish about that or those They're are people as a cult or weird or right, exactly. or, just, or immature or yeah, unrealistic exactly i mean i think even when you i mean uh, you know even like the number of times like people on left twitter like dismiss something by calling it anarchist you know yeah. like as if you know as if there was something just like transparently stupid about the idea that you would form your life around like resistance to hierarchy and domination you know like and that coming from leftists is like particularly is particularly upsetting to me because it is about this like the only the only way that we can imagine a world being better from that perspective 
is this like technological progress and a met and you know like the positive a kind of redistribution um of what we already have right so right. That we'll just have like more and better jobs you know right. and more and more and better sources of energy or whatever it is and like you know I, yeah so there's a way in which like you know the kind of um uh even, I mean, there because there is something that like in seeing that people do all of this kind of, you know, maybe small scale, but in some cases really significant kinds of organizing and living in ways that aren't normative and that are critical and that do emphasize like what you were saying, like talking with other people, like, but all of that can very easily be turned into this kind of like cartoon um yeah, just like a caricature that we automatically know is stupid, you know? And then we wind up with like fucking Elon Musk being like, I'm a utopian anarchist and I just want to fucking kill myself. On the cover of Time Magazine. Jesus fucking Christ. The most important publication in the world. <laughs> it actually, every year when when people say things about who the Time person of the year is, I always think, does Time Magazine still exist or does it just come out for the one issue a year? It ought to, it just, yeah, it should. And it should only be distributed to the people who, no one else, they shouldn't talk about it. They shouldn't advertise it at all. Only the people who get Time Magazine, you get Time Magazine, you do not talk about Time Magazine. It's just like Fight Club. The first rule of getting Time Magazine is you do not talk about it. <laughs> oh my Lord. All right, so. Yeah, great. Um, all right. Um, let's go. Let's do this. <laughs> let's 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 go. Let's go. Let's go. Um, Swan and Pauline and Waram and Jeanette, which is an interesting chapter title because it's four names instead of we've had three before. But yeah, it's four? four. It's the most. Holy crap! <laughs> it's the most, and they're still on the. Eidgenössische Technische Hochschule Mobile. You've been practicing. Haven't you? <laughs> I can't. I can't get the first word really at all. Um, ETH Mobile, Mobile, um, and uh, and they're hanging out. You know, they're on a trip. It's like a little cruise ship, basically, with uh, this uh, the cloud forest there, and they're hanging out, just minding their own beeswax and. Uh, and yeah, and so the chapter kind of weaves together like Swan. We're mostly like we're focalized through Swan through the whole chapter, um, and it it weaves together her kind of meditating, still part of her brain working through trying to figure out what she thinks about the cubes, um, and then also her trying to figure out what she thinks about Waram, right? And what she thinks about the feelings that she has about Waram, and so we have this kind of like one strain of the chapter is this like, um, you know, this kind of shipboard shipboard romance, or but also that they're kind of like um, they're now spending more time together, other than when they were in the tunnels than they have before, right? So right. there's that moment of sort of like you know, reflect reflection that gets woven together with a kind of furthering of the story about the cubes and of the, uh, the pebble mobs, right. That, um, that blew up or attacked uh, terminator. Um, those things get kind of like tied in together. Um, so we have this kind of, 
along with a kind of adventure story in this chapter too. So, you know, we have a bunch of different things that can like um, happen on a long, on a, on a long voyage. Um, uh, uh, but we also have a chapter that's interestingly like yeah, just weaving a whole bunch of strands around together that on the face of it don't seem like they really belong together at all. Right. Yeah, that's true. I'd never thought about that it that way before. That um yes. I just thought of it right now. <laughs> oh. Wow, it's almost as if we're having a conversation that's unfolding in real time. Like we're just hanging out. What? Um yeah, that they that yeah, and and this. We'll we'll get around to it, but I think I I I don't want to beat the the spoiler conversation into the ground any more than we already have. But I think this like speaks to kind of the book and Stan's overall work and our attitude towards spoilers as well, especially regards these books. Is that in this way there there's a kind of spoiler proof quality to them in a, in a certain sense. And we'll, I think we'll get to that in a, in a moment, but it has to do with that kind of meandering sense of plot where, you know, things seem to be happening and they, and their, the relationship between those things, you know, emerges or is uh, really left to the reader to kind of sort through, I think. Um, Swan, it starts with Swan telling, basically telling Pauline about the cubes, yes. which she's not supposed to do. Yes. So Although, spoiler alert, Swan breaks the rules. She's a rule breaker. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, how long could she keep her mouth shut? Obviously, she, she it's very that. funny because, yeah, like, no, I promise not to tell. Pauline, you won't believe what I just heard. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, it, I do have to say, though, I love that right before that. I mean, so one of the one of the things that I think is like very great in this chapter is the kind of like, um all of these contrasts between like slowness and hurry and mm -hmm. like, um, you know, the, the, in the blink of an eye quickness with which things can change and like long duration, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I just, the, at the first, uh, the very beginning of the chapter, you know, and they're in this like, um, in this little ascension that is mixes together, like, um, you know, sort of Australia and the Amazon, I guess. And Swan looks at Waram and rather than seeing him as the toad, sees him as a, as a sloth. Yeah. Um, and she keeps repeatedly in this chapter, we get a lot of times when they're having a conversation and then he's silent for an incredibly long time. And she's like, is he gonna say anything? Because he's just reflecting. Um, and uh, there's a line somewhere about him like staring at a rose for such a long time. <laughs> I remember that. I don't know where it is. Uh, yeah. Just like very, very funny. Her kind of, you know, like. Oh, yeah, there it is. Once she saw him, it's the second sentence of the second paragraph. Once she saw him spend half an hour inspecting a single red rose. <laughs> I just, I really love Waram. And I think there's a very funny play with Swan and Toad, then Wolf and Sloth, you know, like, um, and surely she thinks like, isn't lethargy a sin? Uh, and, but, you know, surely like, you know, the, the Wolf and the Sloth are, if, you know, are two different kinds of sinners. Anyway, there's, there's like something yeah. sweet about that. Um, and also funny. And then, yeah, she's like, Pauline, Pauline, I got to tell you. Right. Um, 
and so which is a good always you know it, it ends up being a good thing obviously because pauline gets to work on this problem and contacts wang's or wong's um ai in a kind of um encrypted conversation uh and they go to they go about trying to um you know figure out find out what they can find out right right because it's also part of it it's partly an experiment about a about their ais as well as like what can the ai find out about these cube cube ais um and how might they go about doing it because what they end up discover they they end up discovering that they're able to do this um massive micro observatory network like swans like i didn't know you could do that and they're like we didn't either but we did and it worked good i mean it's an interesting shift also you know like um pauline and uh, wong's uh cube end up like they also do some detective work here and the big thing that that pauline contributes i think on my sort of reading of it is that the conversation the conversation that swan was not supposed to tell about really seems like most of the people in that conversation were pretty convinced in one way or another that like the issue is the cubes themselves um, and whether they are like self-organizing or <coughs> what and like the question about their status. Um, and it's um, Pauline who says, um, uh, uh, there may be cube humanoids that seems possible, although awkward, and they may be involved with these attacks, but it is most likely they are being programmed by humans rather than deciding by themselves to be some kind of self-conscious actor in human history. And if you recall the possible mistake you noted of adding the relativistic procession of Mercury to a targeting program that already had it, that has the look of human error, I think you will agree. Right. So it, like, it takes a cube to say like, um, yeah, maybe we can take that seriously, but you know, if we think, if we try to think through the thing that we are actually investigating here, it looks like humans must be involved in one way or another. And and this, you know, will matter to understanding of like um, who's doing what to whom, basically. Yeah, and that's a really interesting point to make too, because it is the perspective of an AI, of yeah. a, of an of an other. You know, yeah. it helps to diversify your workforce because yeah. that way. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like this is why they want, uh, you know, uh, neurodivergent people to join the CIA. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm thinking. I'm thinking of that CIA ad where the where with the the sort of the person being like, "I'm a cisgendered white millennial." <laughs> Oh with ang- with social anxiety disorder, but I found a home in the CIA or whatever. Oh my oh. god! <laughs> <laughs> oh, and Capital understands this. So anyway, let's. Yeah, not get into I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing. But so this is an interesting, you know, like in the kind of like the chapter starts off with Swan feeling slightly frustrated with with slothy waram and thinking like isn't this isn't sloth a sin um you know shouldn't he have a little bit more energy behind him why is he just staring at that rose and listening to music for such an extremely long time um and then she does a thing that should be a bad thing because she breaks a major confidence um but in breaking the major confidence she not only not only do we get sort of like a further nudge in the direction of kind of understanding something about what's going on also, we get opened up to between Pauline and um, 
Wong's AI, we get opened up to the kind of like crisis that forms the kind of like dynamic part of this chapter as well. Right. I mean, that's the reason that they kind of know um, that it, an attack is being leveled on the sun shield, on Venus's sun shield. Right, exactly. Um, I do want to say a couple of things too about Swan and Waram's relationship and just the way it's rendered here, like that she's really puzzled by it, like trying to figure out what it is that they're actually doing there. Like, um, and the way that it's presented to, and it relates back to like last episode where we sort of talked about um, maintaining an integral personality, like integrating yeah. yourself because she, it's framed for her as um, it's my, <laughs> my 469. It's the second sort of, it's the first section after the first section break spent quite a lot of time together at this point, made music together, was sleeping together. Swan felt herself liking him and, and felt in her the desire to like him and the pleasure she took in that feeling coming to her. This was a feedback loop in the hall of mirrors that was her mind. His froggy face was often in the glass, off, set off to the side, watching what she did with a gaze she could feel. Sometimes they spoke of incidents in their shared past or discussed the ongoing drama of Earth's reanimation. Sometimes they held hands. All this meant something, but Swan didn't know what it was. <laughs> the Hall of Mirrors was bouncy. Sometimes she wondered if she had any more high order functions than Pauline or the marmosets in the park. <laughs> you could know a lot and still not be able to draw conclusions. Pauline had a decision rubric written into her to force her to collapse the wave of potentialities and say just one thing, thus emerging into the present. Swan wasn't sure she herself had that rubric, which is a great uh way to describe um the frustration of being human yeah um, yeah and also an interesting like that like swan it this is an interesting contrast to um how is it that what is waram's description of um uh constituting his like repetitive his iterative what is pseudo iterative um you know, here Swan is also feeling like, oh yeah, how do you, like, you know, um, how do you put yourself into just be in the present moment? And it's funny that that is such a, um, you know, so she imagines it as like, couldn't, can't you just like you you like lock in somehow? You shove the other possibilities aside, you lock in, and then you're just like there in the present, right? Um, but it's such an interesting way, I think. I think it's a really interesting way to talk about love, right? The way in which like love is like supposedly about like being in, I mean, as in romantic love, but may maybe any kind of love, like being in the present moment with another person. And yet there's always, and this comes back in the chapter again later too, there's always this kind of um, sense of displacement, like a projection into multiple possible futures, the sense of displacement in that you don't ever actually know what the other person's internal experience is, and therefore you have to reflect on it. So you're always being like, you know, there's both like the longing to be in that present moment, and then always this kind of like pull, pull back from it. And like this here is compounded by a swan sense that like she and Waram like live at different rates too, you know, like, um, his kind of, his sort of like, um, you know, uh, durational, his practice of being like durational and still and hers of like, you know, leaping and running and diving and et cetera. And, and that, 
I mean, that this conversation or their conversation branching off of that speaks directly to kind of like um, the, okay, this giant bundle of criticalities and she's like, yeah, I mean, your body can break. It will break. You're, you're going to like fail, but your world should be more stable than that. Yeah. And it's like, that's part of, I feel like that's an interesting variation on the structure of feeling too, a little bit where it's like you, you want to have some kind of like internal personal structure of feeling that somehow mirrors the external macro structure of feeling, but they actually are on radically different time scales. Yeah. And it almost is like a wave kind of function too, like surfing a wave, like your, like your personal structure of feeling or a smaller scale version of that is not the same, like the one I have in here in Maine or the one you have here there in Chicago is not the same as the overall structure of feeling of like the whole country or like in, you know, Mississippi or somewhere, or like, or in China, like they're radically kind of, they're radically kind of different and those kinds of, so it becomes even more difficult to like kind of relate interpersonally and not, not only to relate interpersonally, but also to understand how different of the macro systems and different of interlock together or, or inter interweaving together. Yeah. 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 That's really interesting to link that to that, that comment that like your world should have more stability. And that's also just making me think that like when, um, uh, when Raymond Williams talks about structure of feeling like particularly in the introduction to the long revolution, um, partly the structure of feeling is something that you, um, you only sort of like apprehend through what's missing or through like the kinds of like the thing, you know, through the kind of like retrospect on a moment that contains things that you can note are different, right? Or seem to be different ways of like feeling, thinking, acting, conveying, whatever it might be. So there is always, you know, in relation to the structure of feeling, there's also, or trying to, you know, like feel the structure of feeling, there is always this problem of like the, the gap or like the lag um, or the gen or the generation, you know, the thing that, um, the thing that made, makes sense at one moment in time and then does not make sense at another moment in time. And that's the thing that like, you know, for Williams, like, those kinds of things can be captured, not intentionally, but, you know, in cultural objects. Right. But when you discern them, you're always discerning something through this kind of like, because you don't understand it, because there is some kind of difference there, because there's some sort and, and also loss often. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the mediation of those, of the thing that preserves it or, or happens to register it is also inevitably going to have a there's a loss factor, um, whatever, right? Because it's not being immediately experienced. So, right, right, yeah. And that, right, and that mediation. I think that mediation is really important to the in this chapter in the line of thinking about Swana Waram's relationship that she here in this part that we were just talking about, like thinks of like the Hall of Mirrors, right? You know. Um, if you are reflecting, if you want the other person to reflect you, there's something quite empty about that kind of like reflection, right? That's like not really what mutual, mutual reflection can't be that because it's right. not mutual to have like two mirrors facing, <laughs> facing right. each other. Right. Um, and so the question is about like figuring out how 
I mean, this is like a crude way to put it, but but figuring how, out how the necessity of mediation is not like a, a loss of something, but rather gives you like something else, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's not that, you know, like ideally you would have like, you know, total immediacy between two people, but rather, you know, that the of necessity mediated relationship allows for something that is different than the kind of fantasy of a sort of like immediate knowledge or understanding or, or shared feeling or something. Right. 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 A kind of, uh, alpha bung. Uh, (laughs) as they say, (laughs) uh, um, so yeah, life was a thing kept alive in little bottles. He was going to say, now he was going to say something ameliorative and gradualist. All we can do is try our best. And then she pissed at that. If crazy people can destroy Terminator or anywhere else, then our best had better be good enough to change that. Um, and then he says, so we try to stop them. We have a situation. We try to deal with it. Deal with it. Suck it up and deal. Ugh, she says. Um, so then she gets news that from Pauline that they have detected a new attack on the sun shield of Venus. Right, an attack in process. In process. And they've only been able to do this because they tried this thing of distributing a network of micro observatories, um, which is a very cool, remarkable. Yeah. And it's going to, it's like happening imminently, like in five hours. In five hours. And I mean, and this is made worse because uh, the, the sun shields defense system is, is a closed system and has maybe been, um, maybe been messed with, or maybe is just not accepting the evidence that they are offering and therefore it is not doing what it needs to defend itself. So we have a very like, um, you know, here, here the AIs are talking to each other, but not all, but not all of the AIs are willing to listen, right? And it's not clear if that's like a programming, something that's actually happened recently, or if this is just the sort of like the habit of mind of the Sunshields AI that it's like, uh, I'd, I'd like to wait and get a little bit more information. Yeah, a little bit of a little bit of both, probably, um, maybe, or or it, it doesn't really matter if it's it's kind of like the it's like. It's like the question of whether the Democrats are just constructed to be a capitalist party of obstruction or if they're just peopled by stupid idiots at the top. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day (laughs) Um, if Joe Manchin is a villain or just a doofus. Uh, He's probably both. I'm sure he is both. He's definitely both. Just uh, you can look at him and tell he's a bad person. Um, (laughs) He lives on a boat, for God's sakes. Who lives on a fucking, you know, house yacht? He lives on a boat? He lives on a yacht that's like $18 million or something like that, which seems like precarious to me. Where's his boat? Probably in like some fucking lake in West Virginia or something like that. Is <laughs> a boat on a lake? <laughs> that's... Uh, I always wanted to live in a houseboat. I mean, it would be cool if it was like, if you were like a, like a, burned out cop from LA and you know uh yeah you just slept in your jeans and uh you know Mel Gibson style I mean I know he lived on a trailer on the beach I mean doesn't Sonny Crockett in the tv show doesn't he sometimes I mean he sleeps on his boat definitely okay okay 
Does, um, Doesn't Sonny Crockett live on his boat? Probably. I don't know. I'm not very familiar with the Miami Vice TV show. Well, Matt, um, you should be. There's another TV detective that definitely sleeps on his boat. I can't Magnum remember. PI? Magnum PI. I was thinking Magnum PI, but he lives in that mansion with um, Smithers oh or whatever the guy's God. name. Oh my God. That's such a weird show when you think about it. He's a PI. He's a private investigator. Yeah. There's another, uh, I'll, I'll do the research. I'll find out who else lives on a boat. A lot of them do. A lot of these boat types. Yeah. Yeah. But those aren't even houseboats. Those are, those are just usually like, you know. Yeah. Um, the boat I go fishing on. What was the, it was, there was another, <laughs> the boat you go fishing on. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a person who's been on a boat like four times in my life. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's another, there's a movie, there's a detective movie that I watched in the last, it, sometime in the, in the, in the time loop that we're all stuck in. Mm. Oh, it was, oh, it's a Clint Eastwood movie. Um, one of his like lesser films from the eighties where he plays, uh, uh, I think it's blood or no, it's the nineties. I think it's like blood tie blood work, maybe <laughs> terrible fucking name. It's not a great movie. Um, but it is a kind of movie where he, I think he gets a uh, replacement heart from a like murder villain, murder victim or something, <laughs> murder villain, a murder victim. Um, Jeff Daniels is in it. He's very good. Wow. Anyway. All right. Well, you sold me. It's a, it's a lesser, it's a lesser Eastwood, but. Uh, Houseboat heart transplant, Jeff Daniels. I'm in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Anyway, Clint Eastwood's uh, spinoff show in the works. Um, <laughs> make a note of that. Anyway, so so bad situation. Venus's defenses. I mean, so if the sun shield is taken out, Venus is going to burn. Bad news. Um, extremely bad. Extremely bad news. Um, kind of terrifying news. I mean, really would actually be like significantly worse than what happened on Mercury. Um, uh, the Venus's defenses aren't able slash willing to do anything about it. And so the thing that has to happen is that the pebbles have got to be thrown off course. Um, and basically there's only one way to do it that seems, um, available and possible. And that is to take our friend, the ETH Mobila, and use it to throw the pebbles off course so that they do not destroy the sun shield intense but it requires the eth mobila to be traveling <laughs> at three times like 3g basically like three times the speed multiple times the speed of the pebbles arriving because the pebble mob is much larger in mass than the ship right um so that for it needs a like compensatory speed to because of physics and then we get this amazing, this really cool action sequence. Um, Which oh, before- and also like the other thing is once they agree to this, right? Like they go straight to the captain. They say, here's the situation. The captain's like, okay, cool. We'll just smash into those pebbles then. And nobody like, <laughs> nobody like really, like they're presented with scientific, this is why it's a utopia. They're presented with scientific evidence and they they accept the, uh, the validity of that evidence. Right, right. And right. the, uh, the, uh, and the uh, only logical solution and they accept that solution and nobody complains initially, at least about how much it's going to cost or well, who's going to pay for it's this. Swiss, so it's covered by insurance. Well, that's the point. That's the whole fucking point of insurance. 
Is that like it? Repl- you, that's why you pay the insurance. <laughs> that's why Switzerland still exists in 2023. Yeah, right. Uh, I love right at the beginning of that when they're they're telling the captain, um, uh, Waram, we're, we're, um, the captain and everyone in the crew looked startled at this idea, but Waram gave them a little time to adjust. <laughs> if we decide to do this, are there enough lifeboats for everyone aboard? Lifeboat is not the right word, the captain said. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's argue over semantics first. <laughs> it's very adorable. And then later, when the captain is making the announcement over the over the PA, letting everybody know. And so basically, like, everybody could get into one of the lifeboats um, or um, people can get into spacesuits. People who have whatever the requisite experiences could get into spacesuits. Scuba, just pre- scuba licensing for exactly, outer space. Right, have, have their scuba license. Um which is preferable because the spacesuits are actually better provisioned f- just in case, right? Because everybody's getting out and then going to be just like drifting around and have to be picked up by rescue ships of various kinds. Um, so the captain has to say all of this over the PA. And he also has to say, by the way, we're going to have to be accelerating. So we're going to be under very, very high G's. So this is going to really be very difficult. Um, uh, and so we get a little bit uh, sort of in... Uh, a little bit of a kind of um, indirect discourse. The inconvenience was greatly regretted and assistance from the crew would be provided to all who requested it. The announcement as it went on and on in its convoluted Swiss way was causing an uproar. (laughs) And it just like the idea of having to explain. So this whole episode is obvious. It obviously this whole episode feels very much. I mean, and I think this is made pretty explicit it's a rewriting of the space elevator, uh, the cutting of the tether of the space elevator and people's need to get out in the Mars books. Um, And in that sequence, one of the things that we talked about a lot was part of the point of that sequence is when the pressure is on, when the chips are down, when it's an emergency, like people are freaked out but they do what they have to do and they don't become like, you know, suddenly become like territorial monsters, like throwing each other aside. Instead, they basically slightly chaotically, but as best they can um, figure, do what they need to do to get out of the situation. And that is basically what happens here as well. But we have like this overlaying of these kind of like, just like really amazing, like comedic and also like kind of, um, uh, uh, I don't know what to, uh, comedic and also like other kinds of elements over it. Right. So, so the, that very, that the story of the space elevator looks much more straightforward than what we see here, uh, which has certain like hilarious, um, and also very heroic qualities. Um, yes, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it could only be, I mean, this is, that's why they call this science fiction is because a bunch of people are presented with a series of facts that only has one, uh, solution for collective salvation. And they all begrudgingly, some more than others fall in line and do what needs to be done to save not only themselves, but others as well. Well, I mean, one of the reasons that people save other people is that a lot of the people who are on the ship are smalls. Yeah. They are all, I mean, as as uh, Jeanette says, every small takes up the call, never yet died by natural cause. 
None never yet died by natural causes, <laughs> which is a natural cause. Every small takes of the call is one of my favorite, absolutely just favorite things that has ever been said in any book. But basically, like, you know, because, you know, I'm sure that like the so-called normal size people and the talls and the rounds look at the smalls and they're like, oh, they're so cute and tiny, you know, what do they do? But it turns out that when the pressure is literally on, it is better to be a small person. And they are the ones who are like fucking dragging people through the ship when they can't move. They're like dragging them into their suits. And, you know, the reason I think they're happy to be heroic is it's like, hey, this is our element. Why, why yeah. do you think we're like this? We're like yeah. this because this is how you live in space. I'm a badass. I love in the G, smalls. In G like this, the differences in mass between people became striking and important. Smalls weighed three times as much as they usually did, like everyone else on board, but that still left them at weights that human muscles had evolved to handle. This was made quite tangible by the sight of all the smalls on board, still on their feet and walking around. Some crouched like sumo wrestlers or chimpanzees, Others strutting like Popeye, but in any case, upright and moving, and most of them working hard in impromptu teams to help their prostrated larger fellow passengers. And of course, uh, Waram is one of the larger fellow passengers yes. who's having a lot of trouble um, getting into his suit. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's just a wonderful. It's a happily, great Inspector thing. Jeanette passed them at work with two uh, past uh, Waram and Swan. I worked with two other smalls hauling a big tall who looked like Michelangelo's David, but could only just keep his head off the ground as they slid him along. It's literally like moving a statue. I'll be back. Said to Waram and Swan, off they went, shouting in their high voices at each other. I uh, uh, this scene makes me cry both uh you know because it makes me laugh and because i find it very moving it's great um, very, very moving it's a really great uh it's a really great scene um e even in the locks some people could so when they have to get everybody who's not getting on one of the lifeboats has to get to one of the airlocks which is where the suits are and they have to get in or be gotten into the suits and then they have to go out the airlock and that part man that is such an intense like here you are with, maybe there's some people you know, but you might be with a group of people who you actually don't know at all. And everybody is just like holding hands with each other in order to jump out into the unknown. Yeah. Right? Just into the blackness of space there. I mean, they're just stepping into the void. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, even in the locks, some people couldn't move. And there were smalls in there working hard to kick and shove people out the open door. When the inner doors reopened, they were still there, their faces under their helmets suffused with a mad joy. <laughs> yeah, the smalls are like, this is great. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, how, how great, right? Just bunch by bunch. Um, and then, uh, so yeah, Swan and Ram are helping out. Um, it was a spooky thing to dive off an accelerating spaceship into blackness and stars clothed in nothing but a personal suit. Many a round-eyed person entered the lock and Swan could sympathize, even though in ordinary circumstances, she liked this kind of thing. Some lock, <laughs> some lock groups jumped out together, holding hands, hoping to stay together. Once the ones still inside saw this on the screens, it became something almost every group tried to do. They were social primates. They would take the risk together. No one wanted to die alone. It's beautiful. Um, I mean, and that's, what, that's yeah. what that's what kicks in, right? That's the idea that like yeah. 
you know, in that moment, like that, just like baseline sociality, um, that's part of what's holding people together. Right. You know, I don't want to be by myself, so I better make sure that like, it's not just me who's jumping out that door. Well, the only, I, I don't know if I've told the story about my, uh, capsizing and a whitewater rafting trip in Alaska before. It's a good story. But it, but that's the only comparison I have because when they were doing our, when they trained us in, uh, you know, cause it's open to anybody who wants to do it. You don't have to have whitewater rafted before, but you're wearing these dry suits that are like gasketed around you. And the first thing they do is say, okay, jump in the river and roll over on your back and float down the river until you get to that little break and then stand up. And then that'll be your test basically, um, to demonstrate to you that you can float in the suit. You'll be fine. You'll be, you know dry all that we get into the river we start floating down and from behind and to the left there's a guy who's just going help help me help oh help me and he was not allowed to go on the trip because (laughs) because as they told us actually the first thing they told us was you are responsible for your own uh rescue You need to be, oh no, you need to be an active participant in your own rescue. You need to swim to the boats. We can't all just jump out of the boats and pull you up, but we all, we capsized and we were, you know, saved. Everybody's instincts to save and help kicked in. You live to tell the tale. I'm still here. Amazingly, amazingly enough. Still wearing that dry suit too. Yeah. Never taking it (laughs) off. It really smells. Um, and then, so yeah, then while Ram and Swan, um, jump out hand in hand and they're with, you know, a bunch of other, uh, people kind of floating there in a group in a bigger group. Um, uh, there were some, and then we get this beautiful sequence, you know, multiple sequences of just contemplating the stars and, and I, and imagining being totally like your own planet, essentially yeah. like being completely out and like the field of stars, it becomes really almost surreal, like difficult to tell background, background from foreground scale distance is all, all over the place. Um, there were so many stars that the patterns as seen on earth were overwhelmed. It was simply space itself, star blasted, nameless and huge more than the human mind was meant to confront or simply the night sky, a primal experience, half of life, part of themselves, time to sleep, perchance to dream. They gathered their strength and out they went with a Shackleton leap really great really great and and we have again as the sort of um uh i I guess here we're in this kind of um the opposite situation of the tunnel right in the tunnel would also uh like a space hard to distinguish you know a kind of indistinguishable space um but in the tunnel uh waram is actually quite well suited for the thing that they have to do. I mean, he's bigger and he's not in as good shape. Right. Um, so walking isn't as easy for him, but he doesn't get bored. He is able to like put himself into a mental state where he's not going to get antsy. He would have been happy to listen to, to re-listen to, you know, like Swan's way or whatever uh, as they're walking. And Swan, who, you know, is both at that moment irradiated and also um more irradiated than one rom but is also just like not this is like not her kind of thing at all like the right. worst thing for her and here they are on their second adventure together 
and this is actually the kind of thing that she you know she can like vibe with this like thinking thinking about the blackness of space right. <laughs> you know um i mean and she gets anxious but she's also okay with with you know she's like pauline's gonna pump the anti-anxiety drugs into me it's gonna be yeah. fine whereas waram suit doesn't fit him very well because he insisted on wearing a suit that was too big right um uh, this is really not his sort of thing floating around weightless, this kind of like risking of your life. Um, uh, and then he gets horribly wounded in a really just alarming and frightening yeah. uh, moment. And then we have the kind of like the reversal of the tunnel situation when he has to carry Swan, you know, she becomes the one who has to like, uh, like literally hold on to him um, to try to make sure that like uh, they don't drift away from each other and to keep him awake um, yeah and to keep him alive and this is a this is a moment where I I go back to the spoiler thing where it's like this is not really a moment you could possibly spoil like there's no build up to it it's not like a revelation of anything yeah, yeah. the ship explodes through bad luck um, they say that um, it's very surprising that the yacht, the the little rescue vehicle blows up, but it's not like it's ruining part of the plot. And then that Waram is injured in this is also just like another thing that, um, I mean, I guess, I don't know, like, yeah, not a lot. Yeah, he gets injured, he's saved. Not a lot hinges over whether he lives or dies. It's not like he's holding the key like the secret code passcode to unlocking the cubes or something like that so like the narrative in a certain way like a spoiler i would think like the narrative depends upon something happening one way or another right. and the narrative here doesn't really i mean like swan's happiness would be bound up in like waram living or dying but like that's that's about swan as a character not about like the plot of the the unfolding of the plot of the novel right and even if um yeah also, I mean, it, does, it also it unfolds so quickly too it's right, not like right. it's not like he's in like he spins a thousand like 300 pages in like mortal peril and they don't know whether he's going to live or die and you and i tell you at the beginning of writing the novel don't worry waram doesn't die like that would be a spoiler but here it's like over and done with in two pages. Right, right. Yeah, and I was I was going to say that, you know, part of what's interesting about it is that this is an extreme situation in which a great deal happens. Um, you know, uh, it is frightening. Um, but it also like, you know, uh, um, in in the end, like nothing really turns on this other than other than like another sort of manifestation or another like sort of um, shift in the relationship the two of them have. Right. So, because, you know, so like we're we're this like event that includes his suit being ripped, mm -hmm. um, his leg being, of course, like frighteningly frostbitten, um, him passing out. Uh, Pauline has to take over the AI because the suit's AI isn't working properly, um, you know, and plug, plug an IV into him and he's nauseated and he also clearly is like giving up a little bit. I mean, like a whole lot of a whole lot of crisis happens, but where that is going to play out is not sort of like at the terrain of like um, or it's not at the level of like um, 
oh my God, my world is turned upside. This mad, this matters for like, you know, like the progress of the narrative where right. it plays out is actually in the very, like what we could think of as like the much more small scale or everyday, the way in which Swan and Waram are together. Right. Um, yeah. Right. Right. Which is actually quite, I think that that's very, like, it's both like this kind of, um, I don't know. I think there's something that's really interesting about that, that they're, that the extremity that they go through together um, you know, uh, doesn't like pay itself off in something dramatic, right? It mm-hmm. like only manifests ultimately in something that's quite undramatic, which is um, this like sweet relationship that they have. Right. And in part that's because that the world that has been built here is one where a <clears throat> lot of care has gone into like, creating these suits that make you very safe, like the provision of care. Yeah. Like yeah. the systematic provision of care. They have transponders. They're going to be picked up eventually. Um, there's tons of food and like, you know, medical supplies in the suits. They, they obeyed their kind of primate instincts and stuck together um, when they abandoned ship. They didn't like, you know, weren't having to compete or claw at each other to get out first. Um it's a world in which those types of systems are built on top of the kind of our, our social like substrate basically. And that, that comes out, I think really beautifully. Um, I just, that was like the way that you put that was really great in um, a few pages later uh, when uh this section sort of begins with Swan thinking, well, here they were, nothing to be done except to wait. Waiting was never her preferred <coughs> mode. Typically there was more to do than she had time for, so she was always in a rush. Now it seemed uh, long for a rescue from an evacuation. And, you know, she thinks through like, okay, a bunch of things have happened. I don't know where we are. We're really knocked off course. Um, uh, don't really know how long this has been going on. Um uh, uh, Venus and she feels like Venus is bigger. That's the only she the, the only kind of point of orientation she has is to try to like guess how close they are to Venus, which helps her think about like how quickly could a ship get to us. Um, Swan recalled stories of castaways adrift, unfound, frozen for the eons. How many had gone that way in the history of the world? Scores, hundreds, thousands. She heard in her head the chorus of the old Martian song. I floated thinking of Peter, sure I would be saved, but the stories lie, I'm left to die, black space will be my grave. So Peter is obviously um, Peter from the Mars books. Uh, No doubt many of those unfortunates had drifted, expecting until the end that they would be saved. Hope drained away more slowly than the air and food in their suits. They would recall the story of Peter circling Mars or some other marooned person who got rescued and believe a little spaceship would presently appear and hover before them like a UFO, like redemption, like life itself. But for many, it had never come. And at some last point, they had to admit that the story was false or not true for them. True for others, but not for them. The others elect. They're the preterite. Is that how you say that? Preterite. Preterite. The lost ones, the forgotten ones. Thus the stark Martian song. Um, but that is, you know, like, that's exactly like the kind of, as we get, you know, like this picture of um, 
all of this provision of care from like the sort of species being through to like the technology um, to like, you know, just like, you know, Swan caring for hanging on to Waram to make sure that like she's with him and um, et cetera. Um, we also get the other side of it, which is like, you know, um, that that net of care allows people to drop out, you know, I mean, right. and since we're hovering around Venus, which seems to be one of the two primary scenes in the book where we see the people who are not covered um, by this sort of like extraordinary um, network of care of all kinds, right? Human, human produced network of care right? Um, and not state produced network of care also. Like, I think just like really human produced network of care. Um, you know, we have that sense of like, right. So who get, who falls out of the stories, who gets left behind, um, who doesn't get cared for, um, that's there too. And that could be them just as easily as, as not, right. It's just like, it's, you know, here a roll of the dice. Yeah. I think of that song, that song has, to me, has the cadence of like a Sons of the Pioneers song, like the old Western, mm-hmm. like they were like this Western, this band in the fifties that played Western songs, like, um, what is it? Ghost Riders in the Sky or something like that. Mm-hmm. But, but because Mars at that time didn't have that provision of care, or I mean, it's like the wild West or something, that kind of frontier. Yeah aspect to it the kind of land grab land grabby type thing and venus basically occupies that same space now here is the kind of um yeah the space that's being capitalized that that where you can still affect like the development of it to your own sort of ends where like those systems haven't been, those human systems haven't been put in place yet to counteract the kind of um, greed, I guess, that, uh, and that, that allows people to fall through cracks and like be um, exploited. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, or, or just forgotten, you know, people who are available to be forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. So it's an interesting picture here of like, uh, here, like being out, adrift in space is a kind of like this is a great leveler right because this is a place where like hopefully most of the time you get rescued but sometimes people don't get rescued Mm -hmm. um you know but that could be anybody right you know you don't you jumped off out of the ship in a in your suit you know um your chances have become the same as everybody else's chances whereas on venus or on earth or on the earth that we live on um, you know, uh, it's, it's not the case that like, it's that kind of like equal, uh, the, the chances come equally to everybody. Right. Um, and they're there for a really long time. And so they have these, ref- she, you know, it's just time to reflect basically on all this stuff and then time for them to talk. And then of course they have to talk about their relationship ever since the tunnel we've had a relationship (laughs) um and then they're trying to like put a label on it man uh (laughs) labels she's i love i love you he said but of course she said i love you too no no he said i love you i see she said oh dear i'm not sure i know what you mean (laughs) 
Neither do I know what I mean, but I say it anyway, wanting to say it to you. It's that kind of love. Look, this is crazy talk. <laughs> Your leg is frozen. You're in shock. Oh, um, oh God. They're just out there like doing the, no, do you like, do you like me or do you like, 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 like you? <laughs> and then um, this was the heart of it. This word he had used, maybe he interested her. She was drawn to him as to a work of art or a landscape. And there we have like all three things sort of put together, the art, the landscape, mm -hmm. and the, and the, the other, the, mm -hmm. the love, the human, the, the relationship. Um, and then, and, and then going back to whatever book it was, um, love as a paying of attention as a kind of yeah. attention. Aurora. Maybe. That's a, Aurora. Aurora. He showed her new things, but also new feelings. Oh, to be calm. Oh, to pay attention. He amazed her with these qualities. Hmm. Well, I love you too. She said, we've been through a lot. Let me think about it. I haven't thought about it in the way that you seem to be implying, suggesting he suggested. Okay. Well, yes, then I'll think about what it means. <laughs> I he mean, I don't think she's being coy here. I think she's no. really like, she's like, Oh, what, what is this? Well, yeah. F yeah. Discerning what the structure of feeling is again, is like <laughs> that, that exists between them. And then also, yeah. Sorting out like, Okay, I'm 150 years old. Um, does this still apply? He smiled again, but briefly he was watching her like a, well, she didn't know what. Not like a hawk, not anything like a wolf's long stare, more a curious look, a questioning look, a froggy inquiry, <laughs> as if to ask, what kind of creature was she? Robot? Limit? Robber? Robert? <laughs> Uh, and that actually leads really well into a few pages later where we get, um, uh, you were saying before, like we have these kinds of questions about like, um, you know, continuity of personality um, and, and uh, you know, is somebody, how do you, how do you know another person? How do you know who they are? Um, do you sort of know that because you like essentially demand that they always be the same, that they always be what you think they are? Um, maybe to say this is after the break. Um, oh, and they, and they whistle together again and listen and listen to, um, both Bach and Debussy. Um, maybe to say that someone was like this or like that was just an attempt to stick a memory to a board where you organize memories like butterflies in a Lepidopterous collection, not really the generalization it seemed, but just a stab at understanding. Was Varam anything like what she might say about him if she tried to say something? He was like this. He was like that. She didn't really know, uh, which is this is particularly funny given that they are both supposedly like Toad and like Swan. You know? Right, right, right. <laughs> that we're, we're supposed to be able to hold in our heads this like what what are these two people like? Um, yeah. Uh, one had impressions of other people, nothing more. Never to hear them think, only to hear what they said. It was a drop in an ocean, a touch across the abyss, a hand holding your hand as you float in the black of space. It wasn't much. They couldn't really know each other very well. So they said he is like this or she is like that and called that a person. Presumed to make a judgment. It was such a guess. You would have to talk to someone for years to give the guess any kind of validity. And even then you wouldn't know. Um, when I'm with you, she said to Waram in her mind as they floated there together, waiting, holding hands. When I'm with you, I feel faintly anxious, judged, inadequate, not the kind of person you like, which I find offensive, and thus behave more like that part of me than ever, though I want your good opinion too. 
and that desire I find irritating and so contradicted in myself. Why should I care? You don't care. And yet you do care. I love you, you said. And Swan admitted to herself she wanted him to feel that way when he was with her. <laughs> really, uh, it's great. Uh, and here we get the sort of like the paying of attention idea comes up again. Right. Um, it was precisely that misplaced love she wanted. Someone who would like you more than you do. Someone who likes you despite yourself. Someone more generous to you than you are. That was how Alex had been. And when you see that, when you feel that, feel loved beyond justice from some kind of generosity that sets off certain other feelings, a kind of glow, a spillover, it caused something to start that felt reciprocal, a mutual recognition. The hall of mirrors again, a set of laser beam of light between two mirrors back and forth, the beam bounces, two parts of something more. Not just the beast with two backs, though that too for sure, and a great thing, a great animal, but something else, some kind of pairing like Pluto and Charon with the center of gravity between the two. Not a single super organism, but two working together on something, not themselves. Um, I was thinking the sort of um, someone who likes you more than you do, someone uh, more generous to you than you are. This is like the, um, you know, this is love as like um, the fundamentalness of like the gift, right? You know, oh, yeah. because the person, what you love in the person is that they give you a thing without you being able to reciprocate it, right? There's not a, there's not a, this is not an exchange relation right because like their generosity is something that you don't have what they right. give to you is 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 just a gift like nothing is expected in return in well, fact, even you might when, not think you could live up to it and even when you exchange gifts those it's not an exchange it's kind of like not an exchange relationship because it's like they're not each gift is not equivalent no right. matter i mean if you say like okay 40 dollars is the limit for our secret santa that's not what gifting is, right? That's not that's not what a gift relationship is. Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas. Here's some ice cube trays, you know. Um, for example, um, I like that. Um, not a single super organism, but two working together on something not themselves—a duet, a harmony—and it kind of, but also implies like, like a duet or a harmony implies that it needs an audience too, in a way. Uh -huh. Yeah. Like, I mean, they provide the audience for themselves when they're whistling, but we're obviously the audience for them. Um, but in general, it's like, you know, that that the production of a new supra organism um, in somehow like to be real needs to be also like witnessed by like another third organism or another supra organism or something like that. Yeah. Like there is, there's this kind of, again, like the hall of mirrors in the way like, or the it's the hall of mirrors, but then another person looking through the glass at the hall of mirrors or something like that, that kind of makes the recipe like a, a multiplicity of reciprocity or something um, that makes it all sort of real, completes the circuit or something. Yeah. And, the, and then, you know, resists this sort of story that love is like the merging into each other. Right. Right. You know? Yeah. Because, because that distance, right. Like, you know, yeah, planet and moon circling each other, that distance remains, you know? Right. I mean, the, none of this says like you cross, you know, you cross the uncrossable divide and you do actually know what, uh, you know, what's inside them. You do, you do know like, um, uh, 
you can you, right you do have that kind of access to them instead you don't what you have access to is what they give to you right 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 yeah center of gravity between the two yeah and then uh, uh and then you know they get rescued they get rescued um all in their conversation it's revealed to i mean it's just like another little drop and you know on my it's, you know, right before the end of the chapter, maybe I love you. She said, maybe that's what I've been feeling these past few years. Maybe I just never knew what it was. So we have been like witnessing something taking place over several years. It's not just 2312. It's just this cagey way that Stan has of not really telling us when we are, yeah, yeah. which is um, appropriate for like the overall project of like history. There's a cat staring at me. Um, <laughs> the overall project of like, the you know a marxist rendition of history of like when the hell are we yeah <laughs> like, yeah like just because we're technical technologically advanced or we have cell phones doesn't even mean that we're technologically advanced like this advancement thing is a really loaded term um so it's like just because we know what year it is doesn't mean we know where we are in history and that, and that seems like that kind of goes with the, the final note of the chapter where she thinks yeah. it could have been their last hours. Yeah. Um, they were only continuing by way of a rescue. Yeah. It's just that they happened to get rescued. This could have been the end. Um, our stories go on a while. Some genes and words persist. Then we go away. It was a hard thing to remember. And as the locked door closed and they were back inside, she once again forgot it. Yeah. Which is, uh, that's some amazing line. That's so wonderful. Right great um that's so great okay good job yeah good job good job great chapter we nailed good chapter we talked for another two hours or something well, an hour and a half yeah, pretty good nailed I, it nailed it nailed um, it really nailed it we'll be back next time with the rest of the book yeah from kieran on ice to the end to the T-H-E-E-N-D. Epilogue. After the end. Um, yeah. Email us or tweet us. Um, thank you for listening. Oh, yeah. Oh, and um, we have to talk, but we haven't gotten to talk about this yet. Um, uh, someone on Twitter who made the Gray Moss Square for the um, Mars books, we have, to, we have to have a conversation about that. Because okay. I, like, I don't I know. I'm not sure that we're going to be able to give any good feedback, but you know, that was cool. And they tweeted at us and I think we should look at it and think about it. I feel like I'm going to have to reread the whole trilogy to understand what's going on in that green Square. I... <laughs> it might be time to reread the trilogy though. So. I, I was actually thinking that the other day, Yeah. Um, but you know, again, long books. Yeah. Short life, long books. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much for listening. Bye. Bye.